we have a lot of things we're excited about doing and invite and need your participation. Um, but before we do that, I see that Ann's here for the beginning of the forum this time. So we're going to make Ann really happy. Who is co-sponsoring this with Elizabeth and the Education Group? Faith and Advocacy Network, right. Yeah, so, so Ann's now happy because at least this group knows, knows the term. Um, two years ago when Sue Sherrill and I went to Ed Bacon and asked for several Sundays to focus on creation care in April, we had a dynamite lineup which then was visited by COVID and certain parts of it had to be either canceled or completely switched in a minute. Y'all know Ed. In one week he said, well, you can just switch the whole thing to virtual, right? Um, so we pretty much did to the extent we could. And one of the speakers we were most excited about was Dr. Mark Douglas, who's a friend of this parish and a, a very, very unselfish contributor to Georgia Interfaith Power and Light through offering seminars, workshops, being willing to speak. And he was actually here two years ago virtually in a conversation with Ed. Some of y'all may have heard that. There was a huge hue and cry, and we have more of him. So I feel like this um, two years later when we're all live that we're, we're sort of re we're recycling back. We got Kim Cobb here, and we're so privileged to have him. I would like to make y'all aware that Georgia Interfaith Power and Light is a huge resource for us in this city and in this state. The offerings, the workshops, the teachings, the classes are just fabulous, and they're really our partner. We don't have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to designing um, interesting programs or offerings for this parish or helping us do advocacy better and all of those things. They're just fantastic. And to that end, you will, you will look in the next couple of weeks for a very short, I promise short, I think it's five questions, survey about your particular interest in creation care and where you would like to see this parish plug in. Because it's such a big field from advocacy to what we do on the campus to what we educate ourselves for in our own home. And we'd like, to, we'd like to see you plug in. So look for that and look at the ministry fair for opportunities to sign up and tell us what you want to do. So with that, um, I'll tell you a little bit about Martin Douglas. He's an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church. He's a professor of Christian ethics at Columbia. He directs the Master of Theology program. He's written a number of books. And when two years ago when he was here, he provided a reading list, which we can resurrect if if we need to. His latest book, which he's now working on, is called War in a Warming World, Religion, Resources, and Refugees. Um, he is a graduate of Colorado College and the University of Virginia and Princeton Theological Seminary. He's an excellent speaker and listener as well. We are very fortunate to have him. He speaks on a number of topics. This one to me is just seems daunting how to change the conversation and talk about climate change with people that maybe don't want to talk about it. So um, what a challenge and what a wonderful person to get us started on that. So without further ado, Mark Douglas. Well, thank you. Um, it is great to be back with you and be back face to face with you. Um, when Ed did the interview with me, it was wonderful, but I didn't actually get to see you very much in the middle of that. So to know that there are real faces that go, hey, how are you? See an old friend every once in a while. Um, so it's great to be with you, um, and uh, I'm glad that we can have some time together. Um, 
Although I find it really intimidating that you're asking me to follow up Kim Cobb, who I think is just spectacular. Kim's a friend of mine, and so um, you all were great to have her. Um, please don't do comparison, because I will suffer in that process. Um, so yeah, the topic that uh, you all had asked me to speak about is changing the conversation, talking about climate change without sounding partisan. Um, this is a, uh, a, a title that I put together several years ago quite a few years ago for Georgia Interfaith Power and Light and said I can teach on this one. Um, and they said, great, and times have changed. And what I've realized is I can't actually teach on this title. So the first thing I recognize that I have to change is that I can't just talk about climate change. Climate change is only one manifestation of a number of different environmental changes that we are undergoing right now, all of which are having and will continue to have more significant impacts, right? So climate change being one of them, but also the catastrophic loss of biodiversity, the, ex the kind of the, the uh, growth of pollutants in our systems and in our bodies, all of these are linked to each other and, and impacting each other, right? So when we talk about, when, when I talk about climate change, you're just gonna have to hear that's shorthand for any number of dramatic changes in the natural world that are impacting human systems, all right? So that's the first thing to note because um, we would sometimes like just to talk about the one thing, but the one thing has implications for other things and other things are having implications on the one. So that was the first change I had to make. The second change I had to make was um, in our contemporary political system, um, not sounding partisan is just no longer a viable option. The trick is to try and reduce the temperature because the temperature is still going to be a little bit hotter than the natural background temperature. So that's the new title. How to talk about climate change, etc., without sounding too partisan. Um, those qualifiers kind of um, either make stronger or weaken the case that I'm going to be making here. We'll let you decide by the end whether I've done uh, which direction it's gone. A little bit of an overview of our morning. Um, I want to get you all to meet each other a little bit. I know you interact with each other, but um, you often don't interact with each other in ways that reveal the, the work that each of you is individually doing in thinking about environmental issues, even on the ground things like, well, I'm pretty decent at recycling my stuff, or um, you know, I'm a birder, and so I care about what kind of plants are growing in my backyard so that I can see the birds, right? Just little things can still matter. So I'm gonna ask you to meet each other for a couple of minutes, and then I wanna spend a little bit of time talking about our changing context, um, because getting a sense of the context in which we live is vital for thinking about how you're gonna engage others on matters of environmental concern. That engagement, then, I'm going to try and lay out some possible practices, some things that have been demonstrated to be helpful in, better, in having better conversations about climate matters that are also, by the way, exportable to any number of, of politically contentious issues. So um, maybe you'll be able to see like this, and oh, like we could also use this in any number of other areas. Um, and then at the end, hopefully, we'll have some time for some conversation. So um, this uh, is really ambitious. Um, we're probably gonna fly through a couple of things, um, but we'll see what we can do. So first, um, I want you to gather just in groups of say three or four, four or five, no more than five, otherwise it'll take too long. And just tell who you are and say something that you do that reveals some level, doesn't have to be much, 
of environmental concern, right? Easy task. Who are you? Some level of environmental concern. I'm going to give you about four minutes. Go. Okay, I'm going to ask you to start finding periods to go at the end of sentences. And let's now try to uh, regather into a larger group. You know, um, in the Presbyterian Church, we have a term for people who sit in the front pews. We call them rebels. <clears throat> it turns out that's true in the Episcopalian Church, true, because I said three to four, maybe four to five, but definitely not more than five. Seven. Seven in the front row here. All right, so um, I do this little exercise not only because people like to talk with each other and talk with their co-congregants, um, but also because um, projects associated with building relationships are vital toward any type of significant engagement on political issues generally and certainly on environmental issues. Because one of the great things about environmental issues is that once you dig beneath the surface of political disagreement, you often actually find sources of commonality, common interest, that actually you can use to build up better conversations. To give just one very short example of this, um, my parents and I don't stand in the same political place. Um, they are way more conservative than I am, including on environmental issues. I grew up in a house that was solar heated. I grew up in a house that was solar heated because in the 1970s when um, we moved out to the farm I grew up on and built the house we grew up on, my dad was a mechanical engineer, HVAC. And at that point, the Carter administration had put subsidies in place for people to build solar. And dad did the math and said, if I, put, if I do the labor, which he was going to do anyway, because nobody was going to do as good a job heating and cooling our house as him, if I do the labor, solar is going to save us a lot of money. Because my dad, my last name is Douglas. My dad's a good Scot. Okay. He didn't do it because of some great kind of environmental concern necessarily. He did it because it was fiscally prudent to do so. But the benefits that accrued over time were really important to him and shaped me. So when they're like, how did you get so liberal? I said, well, you did raise me in a solar-powered house. Like, <laughs> come on. Just one sense of like, okay, we're not going to agree on some stuff. Um, I drive an electric car. I get emails on a regular basis from my mom about how bad electric cars are. But we'll agree on some others. To get to that agreement, though, we have to recognize the changing times in which we live. And I want to name a couple of sets of changes. So the first set of changing times has to do with environmental changes. I we are naming climate change, right? That we are well over 400 parts per million of um, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We are looking at other greenhouse gases that are also proliferating, and the um, growth of these gases is leading to warming. At this point, you know, 
the um, United Nations has said, what we're really hoping for is to keep it under 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, which will only have moderately horrible impacts. But to do that, we're gonna have to move really ambitiously. But we definitely don't wanna hit two, three, four, which could be catastrophic for wide swaths of um, the human and natural worlds. So climate change is one, but also, the catastrophic loss of biodiversity. Um, Elizabeth Colbert, some of you may have read her book, The Sixth Extinction. Um, she's making the argument that an, in, in all of kind of life's history on Earth, there have so far been five up to us. You know, loss of dinosaurs kind of is the classic one, right? But we're in the middle of the sixth, that we're somewhere around a thousand times the natural background rate of extinctions among species. Um, and though it's very difficult to say exactly how many species we're losing because we don't actually know exactly how many species there are, um, a conservative estimate is three species a day go extinct. Um, and also kind of this explosive growth of pollutants, um, some of which didn't necessarily feel like pollutants for a long time. What does it mean that carbon dioxide, the stuff coming out of my mouth, other than the words, could be a pollutant at certain levels, right? What do we do with, for instance, um, the use of hormones in the cattle industry to allow cattle to grow so that we can have them for meals? When those hormones leach into systems and have an impact on the natural and good bacteria in those systems, killing those, and then you get also um, kind of medically, uh, you get resistant bacteria that may be less good um, as well. So the explosive growth of pollutants are really significant. Um, I've been making the argument for a while that we are entering not only into kind of a new age, but a new epoch um, that some scientists and now people like me are calling the Anthropocene, where human beings are changing the world at a geologic scale. And as we make this shift, it's not only gonna change some of our habits, it's gonna change the way we make sense of the world around us. During the modern period, we've mostly made sense of that world through um, economic terms. What do you do with time? You save it, you spend it. When people go to medical school and they get taught to think about ethical matters, they do cost-benefit analysis. None of those things have necessarily to do with the market but the metaphors of the market have gotten into kind of all parts of our lives. And my argument is we're likely to see the metaphors of environment continue to kind of move further forward and kind of shape how we think about things that aren't necessarily environmentally related because of the impact of these types of things, because of the centrality of them as we move into the future. Because they do have not only impacts on the natural world, they have significant economic impacts and social impacts. <clears throat> Finally, they have security impacts. Um, that's where my work is right now. My work has been focused on um, the way climate change is reshaping the types of causes of and understandings of war we face in the 21st century and what we, what we as Christians or we as religious people need to be thinking about and doing about it using the resources of our traditions, pacifism, just war, just peacemaking moving forward. So um, I always get, I could spend um, several weeks at, at, at a rate of 24-7, talking about that. But I also want to move forward to talk about our changing conversation. Um, our conversations are changing because politics has changed in our society. Um, 
First, I want to note that everything is getting increasingly politicized. What was the one thing you got told you could talk about without getting political when you grew up? The weather. <laughs> nope, that's off the table now. Everything is getting politicized. Public health, politicized. These things, politicized. And it's not only that things are getting politicized, it's that our politics are getting polarized, right? That as everything gets politicized, maybe some of the sense of common ground that we had gets lost, and we are going this way at a time when we need to be going this way. The upshot of this polarization of politics has been the poisoning of partisanship. Believe it or not, in the American democratic system, partisanship is a good thing because it's the way you get people with different positions and convictions to gather into common spaces to have arguments. Arguments, but arguments, good arguments, about how to move forward. Our entire system is built on that. But partisanship can become a bad thing when it becomes poisonous, when it ceases from helping to kind of gain a sense of how to enter conversations from particular perspectives and becomes tribal, becomes um, me versus you and I don't count you fully as a person in the same way that I am because of this. So this, these political changes, the politicization, the polarization and the poisoning um, are all at work right now complicating how we move forward and they're also having economic impacts, social impacts, and security impacts. Um, it used to be when I would teach courses like this, I would get someone who would kind of deny the reality of climate change, and what I used to be able to say is, I'm cool to have that debate, but you have to understand two things. The first is that the market is on my side now. The second is the military is on my side now. That usually shut things down. Hasn't necessarily done so recently because I just get greeted with denial, that's not the case. And it doesn't matter if I show them the quadrennial defense reviews over the last 15 years from the Department of Defense that says, we're really worried about climate change. It's a security issue. In the face of this, we need to come up with better ways to engage each other because these things complicate. But what we do, how we move forward is tricky because there are multiple paths forward, there are multiple ways to pursue those paths forward, and which one we're gonna pursue may turn on what context we're in. Do we wanna work on being civil, which is a good thing? Or do we wanna work on transforming conflict, which is also a good thing? The practices of civility and the practices of conflict transformation overlap, but they are not the same. So part of our job is to know which type of practice do we want to carry into which conversation we're having in order to achieve the goods that we think are important. And what I want to think about a little bit right now isn't so much the practices of civility as the practices of conflict transformation. And I want to just talk about then six basic practices of conflict transformation that have been proven over time to be effective ways of changing conflicts, um, of moving things forward in ways that are good for all. So the first thing um, that those who practice conflict transformation do is they say, um, you ought to learn to see the presenting issue as a window. 
It's easy for us to get preoccupied with the issue. But when we see it as a window, we recognize that it as an issue is connected to any other range of concerns. And having insight into those, that fuller range of concerns is important. When we see it as a presenting issue, we see that um, people's convictions about a particular issue are driven by a wide range of not only other issues, but their own histories, their own communities, their own lives. And so to see conflict as a site, as a, to see the presenting issue as a window is to start to recognize some complexity that's gonna be in our midst. Because it's not gonna be easy enough to solve the debate. We're not gonna to come to an agreement on a particular issue if we haven't recognized that that issue is linked to a whole bunch of other stuff that we get trailed, that trails along behind it, right? You can't change the one thing if these things aren't also in play. The second thing that those who practice confirmation, um, conflict transformation argue is that um, we need to, in to integrate multiple time frames. Um, most of us, especially the married ones, if you're like my wife and I, have been in the occasional argument. <laughs> my wife and I are really competitive, by the way. Um, most of us have been in the occasional argument. And it's, it's easy in the occasional argument to get preoccupied with the moment, right? I want to win the now. That diminishment into the moment has the impact of losing sense of longer historical frames of points of overlap and dissent of um, sources of information and sources of emphasis uh, of energy along the way and so multiplying time frames turns out to be an important thing you can do instead of just talking about this thing now when did you become interested in, ask the question, when did you become interested in this? Can you tell me a moment when this was really meaningful for you? Was there a change in your life where it, when it didn't used to be and now it is? What would you say if this had this implication for your children or your grandchildren? The more you can multiply time frames, and again, I'm complicating things, the more likely it is that the urgency of the now gets reduced in order to pursue a good that can be bigger than the moment. <clears throat> One way to do that, and this is really essential toward conflict transformation, is to recognize that conflicts aren't bad, that conflicts can be good if they move forward in provocative ways. And toward that, part of what we want to do is think about the energy of conflicts as dilemmas, because part of what conflicts are is energized. Well, where's that energy coming from? And what are we gonna do with that energy? Um, having the fight until only one person's standing tends not to be an effective way to use the energy, because the energy just kind of seeps out for a little while, but then once somebody leaves the conflict, they go find the energy again, and they come back redoubled. So thinking of energies um, of the energies of conflicts as dilemmas. What are we gonna do with the heat in the room right now? Is itself an important part of conflict transformation practices. Fourth, make complexity a friend. I've kind of, as you look at the first three, right? I'm already making complexity a reality. Now you're gonna have to treat it as a friend. 
um, you're gonna have to think about um, not only the complexity of the issue, but the complexity of those with whom you are engaged and your own. People who engage in conflict transformation have to do a whole lot of kind of self-seeking, soul-searching types of activity. What's motivating me right now? What's my driver? How have I been shaped over time? What is this topic related to other topics that really matter to me? Make complexity a friend. And then hear and engage the voice of identity. This goes back to that little exercise we did earlier. Um, nobody is only one thing. I am Christian, minister, Presbyterian. I am husband, father, son. I am a particular political persuasion on one thing, but not necessarily on another. I'm a citizen in one space. I've, I've lived in Georgia more than any point in my, more than any other place I've ever lived in my life. I still think of myself as a Colorado boy. I'm complicated. So is everybody else. For Christians, one of the great things about this thing is to hear and engage the voice of identity is to see in the other person, you too are a child of God. You too are made in the image of God. I need to always keep that in mind in order to avoid the simplification of oppositions and binaries. And one effect of that is then to multiply patterns of relationship. I gave you the story about the solar panels on my, the house I grew up in. Multiply patterns of relationship. My mom and I will not agree on electric cars. We'll learn to agree on some other stuff, including for her and for me in a different way. Um, what's economically advantageous? How much more money do you want to spend towards something than you need to? Man, you hit the Scott in us. <laughs> A little bit of parsimoniousness helps. Don't waste money is really important in my family. So those are six basic practices of conflict transformation. If you Google conflict transformation, you'll see a lot of stuff um, that you can take, um, that you can learn from. Um, Lederach and others have written on it, and I would just encourage you to kind of do that. None of this is necessarily, by the way, about environmental issues per se, right? But these are the types of practices that will be helpful in changing the conversation. The last thing I would say is that part of what we're doing when we're changing the conversation is moving from awareness toward advocacy. Um, we can spend a lot of time trying to gather, gain better information about what goes on out there, but until we're actually moving toward advocacy, then we're being kind of illusory in or denying the reality of the energies that are um, motivating us. And if you want to do something with the energy, advocacy is an important part of it. Um, we're in 2022. We're headed into an election. If you're not thinking about voting right now, whether it's for public service commissioner or it's for governor or whatever, with an eye to the world my children and grandchildren are gonna live in. I hear Kim talked about a little bit about this. Then probably you're not fully engaged in the, in the question of advocacy in the way you need to be, right? When I'm asked what are the most important things you can do on environmental issues, vote, make sure everybody's vote counts, 
and make sure everybody gets to vote. Do those three things. That's fundamental toward environmental advocacy. Um, I know we only have so much time left because there's a hard stop, but um, we'll pause now and um, I can take a couple of questions at least. And I hear maybe somebody's supposed to pass around a mic. Uh, come up to the mic if you, wanna, if you wanna ask a question or make a comment, or if you wanna argue with me. I, I'm an ethicist, argument is what I do for a living. It's probably um, not, uh, it's probably everyone knows, technology's had a lot to do with all of this that we're talking about mm -hmm. here. And uh, so what do we need to do about technology? Well, how can we address technology, from your perspective, to help us do a better job of advocacy, of communication? Great question. Um, so I'm gonna answer that in two ways. The first thing to say is, um, Technology is one part of impact. Um, environmental scientists want to talk about impact, and they say impact means paying attention to population, technology, and affluence. These, I'm a Presbyterian talking to Episcopalians, affluence is a thing we know, right? <laughs> um, pay attention to these three things if you want to understand impact. Never just one of them, all three of them combined. So the first thing to say is if you want to pay, to pay attention to technology, on environmental issues is to pay attention to technology as it relates to population and affluence. The second thing to say is that technology, um, like any other tool, can be weaponized and can be useful. And how are you using the technology matters. And if, so, if at some point you say, I'm going to take this technology and use it to knock down rather than to build up, you probably want to step back and think about technology in that instance. So that's the kind of the double-sided answer here, right? The um, impact of technology, the use of scarce resources that are often obtained in ways that we would find horrific. And the use of technology and how are we using it toward particular goods, recognizing that technology can get, like any tool can be a weapon if you hold it right. Example of, right, uh, so, so I gave two parts to the answer. So the first part, one part of the answer um, would be um, most of us have these things. These things have rare metals in them. Those rare metals are mined in parts of the world where democratic practices and stability and human rights get ignored, which means that when we buy and use these things, we're participating in technologies that are not only having an impact on human rights for people who are creating or mining those things, but we're having an impact on the natural world because the mines that are being built are destructive, okay? Um, one of my arguments on security issues is that nobody gets to be um, in any context um, free from complicity now. We need to uh, remove that idea of like, I'm not in this, that's not a category anymore. So that's the one side. The other side is when I'm using this to talk with others, as I do, what kind of language am I using? Because now I can use this to FaceTime with people in any part of the world, which can be great. My daughter studies in, um, doing, is doing doctoral studies in Scotland. If I wanna talk with my kid, this is fantastic. One implication of talking like this though is, and it, it's been exacerbated by the pandemic unsurprisingly, is I tend to talk with more people who look and think like me. 
which creates, which reinforces the tribal qualities that can be problematic. So there's the two sides. Yeah. I think they're going to make you go up here at this point. And I hear that they're going to cut us off pretty soon. So. about the scarce resources because those scarce resources are used in solar panels and electric vehicle batteries mm -hmm. and so how do those scarce resources affect future wars and future global conflict I mean Ukraine mm -hmm. is rich in those natural resources the continent of Africa is rich in those natural resources so in trying to be environmentally sensitive by using electric batteries and using solar panels are we setting ourselves up for future conflict yeah, I, I noticed. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the short answer to the question is, is yes, we are. Again, we cannot avoid complicity, and some of the solutions that we have today are going to be problems for tomorrow. I don't know how to avoid that because that's the entire history of the human species is we've solved problems that have created problems later on, including the ones we're in now. Anybody who doesn't think that internal combustion engines haven't been a great boon to civilization have missed how much they rely on internal combustion but it's costing us now. What do we do? If I had an answer to that particular question, <laughs> to your question, man, it, I could write a book that would make money instead of a book that sits on library shelves. <laughs> <clears throat> um, I don't have that answer. What I do have is two practices that I try to make, pay attention to. The first is to recognize the impact of what I'm doing. Just recognize that that cell phone has had costs that I'm not bearing that others are and that the natural world is. The second is where I can, I've tried to compensate for what I've done, to tr pursue some type of reparative justice. So um, in my job, I end up tr flying quite a bit. Well, flights put enormous amounts of greenhouse gases in. So at the end of the year, um, my wife and my daughter and I sit down and think about everywhere we've flown and how many miles we've flown and then we judge how much um, we put in as kind of carbon into the system. And there's nice little tables that you can now say, this, this amount of carbon should be taxed at this rate. It doesn't get it, but it does. And then we take the amount of money that it would cost to cover the costs of the carbon and we donate that to an environmental organization. Which isn't going to solve the problem because I'm still getting on planes. But it may change the nature of the problem as I engage it and as others do. Will you help me thank Dr. Douglas? Um, for those of us that need to go to church, um, that need to get ready, um, it's almost 11 o'clock, so please do that. And I know there's some other questions in the room, so hopefully you'll stick around for a few minutes. and take. I those. will be glad to stick around for a couple minutes. Um, my daughter, who's studying in Scotland, is back for a friend's wedding, so we actually can do Mother's Day with our daughter. So sooner rather than later, I'm going to duck out because brunch has been waiting for me because I wasn't Perfect. aware that she was going to be here when this started. So Perfect. thank you all thank very so much. much.